Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Hi, Hills Church. How you guys doing? I'll clap for you guys. This is uh, me and my family's ninth day here, and we have had such an incredible time. From last Sunday, we went straight up to Tahoe, where it was 80 every single day. God shined down on us. We had such an incredible time. So I say all that to say, I'm just in a good mood. I don't know about you, but I'm in a good mood. I'm also in a good mood because I know this is a good group of people because this is the 4th of July and many uh, people are skipping this weekend, but not you guys. This is how godly this room is right now, right? Like just a bunch of saints in here that are still at church on the 4th. Or the, well, it's the third, but you guys know, like it's a travel weekend. And so I'm just excited for the possibilities. I just want to say this every time I get up on a stage and get to talk about God, I mean, think about that, the unseen God. And then I get to talk about his son who we got to see for a 33 year window. It is an absolute privilege that I do not take lightly. You understand we have the best news on planet earth. And the fact that I get to get up here and just like herald it and let it out. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. And so it's going to be a good uh, few minutes. If you're visiting with us, uh, I'm not your pastor. Um, I love your pastor. That's why I'm here because they went on vacation. And so I've gotten to be here just to help give them a little bit of rest for the last two weeks. And every time I come here and I'm never going to quit saying this, uh, I just want to say thank you you because I am and my family greeted with such kindness and hospitality and generosity from you guys. And so uh, I just want you to know, thank you for letting me be here. I'm going to jump right in because I always overspeak and I'm just going to get right after it. But can we do this? Can we just calm our hearts for a minute? And can we just give this time over the Lord? I'd hate to be up here and start to preach without us just honoring the Holy Spirit and asking him to do the real work in this place. So Jesus, we just, we just ask in your name that the sweet, sweet presence of your Holy Spirit would just permeate this place. Holy Spirit, you're our helper. You're our encourager. You're our counselor. You're our convictor. You're the one who guides us into all truth. I'm not. I'm biased. I'm broken. My, my, my theology and understanding, God, of you is still incomplete, and I don't want that to get in the way. So Holy Spirit, would you just do something beautiful, something healing, something awesome. If there's miracles that need to happen in this place, Holy Spirit, through your power and your kindness, would you just do miracles as I begin to speak? I pray that we would all worship you now, God, how we listen. Give us ears to hear, God, and eyes to see. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said... Amen. So again, if you're a heathen and you missed last week, uh, I was doing a two-part series, I said, on this issue of holiness. And the reason I'm so excited to do not one, but two weeks of holiness, and really we could talk about it for week after week after week, is because it is, in my opinion, possibly the single most fundamental thing uh, to our faith. Because as I said last week, and if you missed, you can go back and listen, uh, the core of who God is, is, is he's holy. It's his chief characteristic. All other characteristics of God flow out of his holiness. And I want to, for those of you who that's a new term, or maybe that term, like I said last week, it's met with some baggage or because you grew up in a church like I did where you heard the holiness preached and the pastor seemed angry and he told everyone to just get holier and do better and everyone was broken and not sure what that looked like. And and so I just want to say, I'll use an English term to kind of make more sense out of this big word holiness. It's just this, it's, it's holy. It's just to be whole, right? And God is the essence of perfected wholeness. There's nothing uh, like you and I, there's nothing broken in him. There's nothing sinful in him. There's nothing impure in our God. And here's what we often forget because we're living in a world that is marred, yes, by sin. 
our own personal sin, and then corporate sin, right? So what we often forget is that God created us, the Bible says in the first chapter, in his image. We bear his image. The goal was to bear his image back to heavens on planet earth for his glory and for your good, right? God's original intent for us was wholeness. Now that was breached pretty quickly in the Garden of Eden when that pesky snake and that really good looking piece of fruit was right there. And we didn't know what to do with that. So our forefathers, Adam and Eve, did something that, that breached their wholeness, right? It, it took away some of their wholeness. And what created uh, out of that brokenness was just some, some dysfunction, some, to put it lightly, some, some madness on planet Earth that we are still feeling the effects of from Adam and Eve. The theologians have a term for this. It's called original sin. Right, We've been told scripture after scripture, verse after verse in the Bible, that we are born into this world with this blood disease that was never originally intended for us. It flows through our veins, and it's this thing called sin. We all have a nature towards it. We are born into this world, unfortunately, right now with a proclivity towards it. And our only hope we know from the resounding theme of the scriptures is not that we just do better and try harder and just, you know, blood, sweat, and tears our way through this life. Our only hope is in the shed innocent, divine, perfect blood of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? That's just good news. It's not up to you. It is up to what has already been finished in Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do in week two is I want to look at just one word. This word is going to be so significant to your life. If you know what to do with it, great. If you don't know what to do with it, not knowing to do with the word we're gonna look at today has such destructive implications over your life. And we find this word just two chapters into the Bible. It's the first time that we uh, ever hear this word and it is so incredibly weighty. And so we're gonna go to Genesis chapter two. I, uh, I was a... Uh, pastor at a church we started in Denver, Colorado for, I was there for 15 years. It was, it was awesome. And about every two or three years, I would do a three or four week series that I would call Edenology. And what we would do, our church would know, we, we use that term a lot. Our church would know when I say we're going to do a series called Edenology, they knew we were going to spend the next however many weeks in the book of Genesis. And we were going to specifically be in Genesis chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. Because what I've always told our church, and now I'm telling uh, my, my second church home here, is, is this. If you do not understand Genesis one, two, and three, you will get off on a really far trajectory away from the truth of all of the rest of scripture. I would say this kind of as a, a tagline to our church. I believe all of God's secrets about life can be found in the garden. All of them. Like if there's one thing you really need to study backwards and forwards and just see the implications and see it's like a diamond, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There's just endless, there's just endless dimensions that you just keep reading and there's so much truth and depth to it. That's it right here. This is Genesis. Can I just show you real quick? This is, this is God's original plan for us right here before sin gets in the way. That's Genesis 1, 2, and half of 3 right there. This is how long we were awesome. Right here. This is what church and reading of the scripture would be like if sin never entered the picture. How awesome would that be? Like I spoke over my time allotted today and I could tell people were like, all right, wrap it up, bro. We get your point. But I was thinking, man, if, if sin never entered the picture, church would be like three minutes long. Don't say amen to that, but it would be, right? We'd sing the most purest, perfected, beautiful song to Jesus with completely pure hearts. 
it would be uh, completely intimate and not marred by anything sinful, then, then a, a, a God would get up or, or someone he would chose to preach that day. And all we'd really have to say was, hey guys, hope you're having a perfect day. Oh, I know you are because sin doesn't exist. And uh, hey, let's go out and steward the earth, which we were given as a gift by God to steward. Let's go have fun on the mountains and the oceans and with all of the animals and fireworks won't blow your fingers off or anything like that. Do everything you want. It's going to be all completely good and wonderful. This is how long we were awesome for. And can I just remind you, this is God's heart for humanity. God is many things. One thing he is we don't talk about enough is he is simple. Creation and humanity was never supposed to be as problematic and nuanced and difficult as it is. Do you know what this is, the rest of the Bible? This is God's response to sin. This is God's response to redemption. This is, this is what now we have because of what the enemy did to humans in the Garden of Eden. That's why I don't like them. That's why I get up here and preach about holiness. That's why I talk about the word sin. That's why I try to, to be as honest as possible with you guys is because this is what God wanted for us and this is what sin creates. This is how complicated it gets. This is how nuanced life is now because of what sin does. And this one word that we're gonna look at here in a couple seconds, you're like, please just get to the word. I'm getting to the word that we're gonna look at is in my opinion, and I believe this with every ounce of conviction in me, in my opinion, this one word is at the root of all other human dysfunction. To some degree, all other human dysfunction that we all know and experience does not matter if you don't understand buried beneath it at the root is this one word we're going to look at. So let's go there. It's Genesis chapter two. I'm going to start in verse 18, just to give you a quick backdrop. If you're new to church, this is right after God had finished creating everything. And his only refrain after everything he creates, including you and me, please hear this, is this. It's good. Except when he says good, it's not in the English language the way we, we use that for everything, right? When he says good, he's saying it's flawless, it's perfect, it's rhythmic. Everything about it is exactly what it's supposed to be. He calls you perfect. He calls you rhythmic. He calls you flawless. And can we remember before there was original sin, there was this thing called original goodness? And that's the only thing God is, cares about. That's what he is trying to bring back to us as humans. He cares about human goodness so much that he sent his only son to pay the ultimate price to do everything necessary to restore back to us human goodness. So that's where we pick up. He's called everything good at this point, And he says this, he then says for the first time in human history, it's not good. So the question is, what's not good? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. So I will make a helper suitable for him. He's talking about Adam here. But then it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was sleeping. He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman to which I say, thank you, Jesus. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man and then Adam does something so manly, he writes a poem. He says this, the man said, this is now the bone of my bones, like he was caught off guard by this girl, right? This is now the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called <clears throat> woman. For she was taken out of man. 
That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. Now, ladies, just be on pause for a second. Gentlemen, let me, let me just talk to you for a minute because we forget this sometimes. Can I remind you what a good God we serve? Like he just said, Adam, here's what I want you to do. It's not good that you be alone. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a nap. Okay, thank you, Jesus, for that. That's amazing already. I want you to take a nap. And then when you come out of that nap fully rested, there's gonna be a beautiful woman staring at you and she's going to be unclothed and she actually wants to have your babies. <laughs> Our God is an awesome God, he reigns, Right? Like we serve a God who just at the core is good. It wasn't him that took the goodness away, right? It was the thief, the one Jesus calls a thief who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. The Bible calls the enemy of your soul, the devil, Satan, let's call him who he is. The Bible calls him a thief, he calls him a liar. The apostle Paul said, whenever the devil speaks, or excuse me, Jesus was the one who said this. Jesus said, whenever the devil speaks, he speaks lies. It's his native language. We know that wholeness was broken and breached because the enemy brought Adam and Eve what? He brought them a, a lie. And so all of a sudden, when they buy into this lie, all of a sudden, there's some brokenness into it, and they feel something different. The last verse I'm going to read, I think this is one of the most beautiful, most uh, amazing verses in all of the scripture in Genesis 2. It says this, Adam and his wife, this is right as he comes out of the, 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 the nap with the naked lady there, Adam and his wife were both naked. Now, here's what's so beautiful about this verse. What's said next? And we're going to get the word we're going to camp on for the next few minutes. They were naked and they felt no, what's that word? Shame. That's it. The single greatest antagonist to the human experience and to human thriving, shame. You may disagree and I'm open to the conversation, but the first unholy emotion that a human ever had to experience, unfortunately, was shame. After the first sin, the first breach of holiness was ever committed, what's the first thing the human heart and the human soul started to take in? Shame. The enemy of your soul, the devil, loves shame. Why? Because Adam and Eve start acting a fool. Adam and Eve start doing crazy stuff. Adam and Eve, for the first time, no longer see perfected goodness in themselves. They no longer see perfected holiness in themselves. All of a sudden now, their identity to some degree has been shattered. And now what they do is there's parts of their body, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, that all of a sudden they're not proud of. Things Eve doesn't want Adam to see and things Adam doesn't want Eve to see. And so they start going and what? They start going to do what we humans still do in different ways. They try, to, they try to compensate. They try to cover themselves. They try to hide things from each other. Why? They're feeling shame. Nothing will cause you to act more dysfunctional and unholy and unwhole than when shame takes root. And shame is a result of sin, sin that you've committed and I've committed, but also sins that have been committed against you. Some of the greatest shame that's in this room right now that we still carry isn't even from our own mistakes. It's been from profound sins and mistakes that other people in your life have made that have cost you greatly. And with that comes shame. And the enemy leverages it to keep us doing crazy dysfunctional things like Adam and Eve. They start lying to each other. They start lying to God. They start blaming each other about everything and whose fault it is. They're starting to be at odds with one another. And the, the most destructive thing they do is when they hear the voice of God now walking in the Garden of Eden, they run from it instead of run to it. You want to talk about destructive and sad. It's shame. 
It's a powerful thing. I'm going to tell you a really silly, seemingly lighthearted and small story to illustrate this. When I was uh, 12 years old, I uh, was the chubbiest I have ever been in my life so far. I was just, you know, my height hadn't caught up to my weight yet. And uh, I did something that in that state I should have never done, but I did it because I wanted to win the affections of one blonde haired, blue eyed hottie named Angie Cooper. This was my first love or so I thought, and I'm 12 years old. So I'm feeling all of these fills for the first time that were new to me. And I was just so captivated by what, what the beauty of Angie Cooper. And she was uh, like cheerleader, right? With all her cheerleader friends and super popular. And she was beautiful and she was athletic. And so she went out for track and field after basketball season was up. So I did what any little kid in love would do. I said, well, I guess I'm going out for track and field, which made me mad because all I want to do is go home, play video games and eat snacks after school. So that's what we did. That's what my people did, right? But I'm going out for track and field and it was the biggest m mistake of my life in, in, in track and field back in the day. And I don't know how it is in modern times. I hope it's gotten better. But back in the, in the day when I was 12 years old, they had this, this thing in track and field called the fun run. Any of you ever hear about it? And I don't know why they call it the fun run. They should call it the run to social demise. Here's what the fun run was. The fun run was, uh, and thank you for letting me have this moment, by the way. This is cathartic for me. Uh, the fun run was a run that awarded your team no points. It took no points away from your team. They would do it at the beginning of the track meet to kick it off. And it was for all the kids like me who had no business running track. And for some stupid reason, they decided to let the least in shape kids run a mile. Like four laps, like let us do a, let us do a 200 walk or something like that, right? You don't give us a mile. We can't be doing a mile and we're already awarded. Nobody cares. Everyone's stretching for the real contest, right? And so uh, about two weeks into track, we were getting ready a week later to have our first track meet and I'll never forget it. It's seared into my memory. Uh, Coach Gardner and Coach Snodgrass, they sat down all the seventh and eighth graders. So there's almost a, there's almost a hundred eighth graders and seventh graders sitting out on the track field. I'm sitting next to, at the time, you'll see why here in a minute, he's no longer my best friend, but at the time, my best friend was named Scott. About eight feet over here was Angie Cooper and all the pretty cheerleaders. And that's the only reason I was out there running. And they started going down the list and they were announcing everybody and what race they would be running because we spent the first two weeks just doing all the different races to see who had what. Now, my friend Scott's the one guy in junior high, and you all got this guy. He's a foot taller than everyone, and he's already got the little puberty catfish mustache, and he's got little man muscle that none of us have yet. He's just better athlete than everybody out there. For some reason, we just happen to be really good friends, even though I couldn't do any of that at all. And we're sitting there, and Coach Gardner just starts going through the list of what everybody's running, eighth grade first, and then he gets to us seventh graders. And I knew about the fun run, and I knew there was a good chance I was going to be on the fun run. And I knew as he kept listing out all the names and my name never kept getting called. You ever been there? Like on the playground where you're picked last? I knew that was about to be part of my story as a 12-year-old kid, right? Whose brain and heart still forming. God be with me. And, and so he starts calling out and then we get to the last race. Haven't heard my name yet. I'm like, not even shot put coach or like this. Give me something. Let me use this weight, right? Nothing. And it was like, so you ever have those moments that happen real fast, but to you, it might as well have been slow motion. I'm sitting there and I know Angie's right over there. And in, to me, I'll do it in slow motion. Coach Gardner goes, and Bergman, you're on the fun run. I'm like, no, coach, Angie, Angie. Like, right? My, my former best friend, Scott, spits out his drink that he was drinking right then, <laughs> laughing. 
you know, we're, we're seventh graders. You don't think through when you just, boys just do stuff. They don't think. We're 12 year olds. He just spits out his water. I look over to my right and I see Angie and her friends cracking up. Now, I got to make a disclaimer. Me and her are still friends to this day. She's an amazing human being. And I look back all these years later, she wasn't really laughing at me being on the front run. She didn't even know me hardly. She could care less at the time about me. She's laughing because my friend in response spit out his drink. Pretty funny, right? Okay. But when you're my age in junior high, some of the most awkward years of your life sometimes, to me, that was the end of my world. Now that, That sounds pretty small and pretty trite and pretty silly, especially compared to some of your all's childhoods. You guys know what I'm saying? But I'm saying that to make a point because here's what would go on to happen after that moment. I promise you this. For the next at least decade of my life, at least the next decade, maybe a little longer, I devoted everything within my resource and power to never feel that feeling of shame again. But here's what I did. I used fig leaves. I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't spiritual enough. I didn't think about, well, you just need to dig deeper into your identity in Christ, Chad, and not let people like that worry you because they're not who your identity is in, your security and identity is in Christ. I was 12 years old. So you know what I put my identity in? Fig leaves. I put my identity in this, and this isn't a talk about vanity, but for me, it was vanity for the next 10 years. And if any of you like me happen to struggle with vanity like that, it's exhausting The wisest guy to ever live, King Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes, you know what he says? Vanity is a chasing after the wind. It's an exercise in futility. You'll chase and you'll run and you'll try and you'll try and you'll try and you'll try and you'll work really hard and it's still you're chasing wind. You're exhausted with nothing left over in the end. So I just said, I'm gonna try and get as aesthetically good looking and in shape as possible for the next 10 years so that I can protect myself from shame. This is how powerful shame is. That wasn't even that big of a moment again compared to what some of you have been through in your childhood and adult years. And if something that seemingly insignificant could have that big of an effect on me that for a decade I tried, to, I tried to fig leaf my way through life by looking as aesthetically good as I possibly could so that no other girl would ever turn me down again, can we not think about some of the power that shame might have over you that have experienced way more profoundly difficult and shameful things than that? It it, it robbed me of a decade, exhausting myself. I never reached any finish line. I never never was ever good enough for what I was shooting for. I just went into what Adam and Eve did, which was protection mode, guarding myself. This is how powerful shame is. Listen to, I I remember reading this book many years ago, and and I just want to give one excerpt, and I'm going to try and read through it slow, because just listen to what... Uh, one of the main, uh, the, the main people in the area of psychology, a guy by the name of, uh, let me get his name right, Gershon Kaufman, he wrote in the book, The Psychology of Shame. Listen to what he says. Shame is important because no other effect is more disturbing to self. Let me read that again. No other effect is more disturbing to self than shame. None more central to the sense of identity than shame. In the context of normal development, shame is the source of low self-esteem, been there, done that, diminished self-image, been there, done that, poor self-concept, check, deficient body image for a decade. Shame itself produces self-doubt and disrupts both security and confidence things God designed you to innately have, security and confidence. It robs you of that. 
it can become an impediment to the experience of belonging. Remember when God said, it's not good that man should be alone, so I'll create a help, I will create a helpmate suitable for him? Listen to what this robs us of. Belonging. It's not good that man should not belong anywhere. Shame robs you of a sense of belonging and shared intimacy. It is the experiential ground from which conscience and identity inevitably evolve. In the context of pathological development, shame is central to the emergence of, here, here's some more stuff, alienation, not God's heart, loneliness, clearly not God's heart, inferiority, not God's heart, but also this, isn't this interesting? Perfectionism. It makes sense why shame would create inferiority, but can I just remind you, that's just one fig leaf. That's just one way to cover something up. Play low, play small. Woe is me, victim, not liking yourself. But, but you know what? On the other end of the spectrum, that's equally as damaging, and we wouldn't think about this because these are the people that get all the accolades and usually have all the money and the success. Perfectionism. Did you hear that in that quote? And I get it. You know, we, we look at people that are perfectionists as kind of the standard bearers. But as I'm getting older and I'm understanding the word of God more and I'm understanding this human experience a little bit more, I sometimes start to ask more questions to my perfectionist friends. I have some areas uh, of perfectionism in me, a few different areas that I'm neurotic about. And as I get older and I understand this more, I have to go back and go, where's that? Is that a fig leaf? You compensating for something? You trying to, to overdo it? You, are, are, cause, cause it's exhausting, right? Perfectionism. Come on. It's exhausting. And that's what it says. It goes on to say it plays a central role in many psychological disorders as well. This makes me sad, including depression, paranoia. Here's a big one. We all know a little something about to some degree addiction and borderline conditions. Sexual disorders and many eating disorders are largely disorders of shame. Both physical abuse and sexual abuse also significantly involve shame. Physical abuse, like that, that's some of your all stories in here. Like that's some of your guys' child. You think my Angie Cooper story is something to talk about? Think about those of you in here, and that's unfortunately... And it breaks my heart. That's a part of your childhood story. Abuse, emotional, physical, spiritual, sexual. You think the enemy doesn't want to just leverage that to keep you a shell of yourself? To keep you compensating in all kinds of ways with all kinds of fig leaves that can never give you true rest, that can never give you true hope, that can never give you true peace? That is the power of shame. And so here's what my heart is for this week. Until we meet again next week, my heart for this week is that every single one of us in the sound of my voice, including all of you who are watching this online right now or watching it later this week, that we would take some time, some intentional time to step back this week and, and, and go over our story again from birth till now. Because what you will find is some Angie Cooper moments. And again, one's way bigger than that, but you will find some ones that you can look back on. And if you have what I talked about last week a little bit, some holy self-awareness, and you start to give some things, some real names, and you start to get back in touch with maybe some feelings that, that those experiences of, of yesteryear brought to you, that you start to get in touch with those again, instead of just hiding them or pushing them down or repressing them or depressing them, 
you can start to let God do some healing work because your story matters to God. So I'm gonna talk about our stories for a minute on this mirror. I don't know if this, this is, they told me last time I shouldn't have used a black pen. It's not gonna work. So I'll try and talk this out so you know what I'm writing up here. But let's just start from birth, okay? Uh, unfortunately, and I hate this, but we have to talk about this because you can't talk about good news, right? Unless you juxtapose it with bad news, right? I'd love to just say good news, but if, if there's no bad news, you don't have good news. You just got news. Nobody wants just news, right? To get to the good news, we just have to spend moments in the gospel talking about the bad news. And the bad news that the Bible makes very clear is there's this thing theologians call original sin, right? So I'll just put that up here. OS. From birth, the Bible says, no one is righteous. The Bible says in the Old Testament, and then Paul repeats it in Romans. No one is righteous. No, no not one. From birth, we have again, Adam and Eve, this blood disease called sin. There is a natural proclivity we all have towards sin that is inherent in us from birth. You don't have to talk about, you don't have to teach anyone. Now, we can teach them to do better at it, unfortunately, but it's there. Kids, kids, each one of my kids sitting out here, they could lie to me as a kid effortlessly. I didn't have to teach them. They were professionals at it. No kids that age should be professionals at anything. But when they thought they were threatened or maybe going to be in trouble, their first instinct wasn't to say, yes, mommy. Yes, daddy. I'm so sorry I did that. I breached some holiness today and I wish that I could have that back. But by God's grace and Jesus's mercy, I will. No, they're like, I didn't do that. Right. We all do that. Where'd that come from? It's the, it's, it's just, it's original sin. So from birth, and I say this not to get onto us. I say this, that you would give yourself some grace and some mercy and some kindness over your story because from birth, the Bible makes it clear there's already things working against us. And so if, if we're supposed to get our identity from the person we see in the mirror and we start to do all the story work about the person we see in the mirror, can I tell you church, we're going to be in huge trouble if this is the mirror of our story that we're supposed to depend on. So, so there you go. I cut my hand so bad on the first service. It was bleeding everywhere. Good thing I wore white today. It was bleeding. Some sweet lady came up and gave me a little napkin. I didn't this time. We got a better tool than the last one. Look what they brought up for me just in case it didn't work. That's awesome. I should use this. feel like a man. So, so, from, from birth, if, 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 if your identity's hope is just in what you see in the mirror, it's already impossible to see what God originally intended for you to be. Listen, we go to the mirror of our story for information, not for identity. You understand that? There's too much marring that's gone on. And then I'll write over here, just, just, just think about your Angie Cooper moment. Again, I want to be sensitive that many of your childhood moments that started bringing a huge degree of shame and dysfunction into your life were so much grander than that. But I'll just write AC up here for, for Angie Cooper. Um, and then you guys, I want you this week, you start to think about some of those profound moments in your childhood, because I promise you, this is why all the good therapists, what do they start with? You're coming in because you think you got marriage issues and what do they want to start talking about? What was it like for you as a kid? Tell me about your parents. Tell me about what it was like growing up, right? And you just think like, hey, I'm paying you to help our marriage get better. And they're going, yeah, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the roots. We're going to attack the shame in your life because you will always project that onto your spouse and dysfunction begins. Look what Adam and Eve did from the beginning, right? So you got your Angie Cooper moments. You got your childhood moments. Some of you like that quote said again, I want to I bring this up because I have such a heart. Some of your stories as a child were... were 
abuse. You can't look at that abused kid in the mirror and hope you're gonna get a healthy and a whole identity from that. I can't stand in the mirror if that's part of my story. I can see a lot down here, uh, but I can't, I can't see my face. I can't see who I really am, what I was really created by God to be. Then you get a little bit older into your teenage and college years and you start to experience some, some big, bigger breaches of holiness. I know in, in, in my story, and I'm just telling you my story, and it's not because we're here to talk about Chad. It's just I'm going to share my story to invite you guys to share yours sometime this week with someone, right? But for me, I grew up in a home being taught real well about sexual ethics. And because of the Angie Cooper moment and because of a bunch of different other things, I thought I had to, to, to speed my way into that world of, of, of encountering sexual experiences to feel full and to feel good about myself and to feel like a, a kid trying to be a man. And so I jumped into that way earlier than the word of God would like us to jump into that stuff. And, and, and the Bible says, hey, sin is fun for a season. And, and, and that's true. I appreciate the Bible saying that. But you know what? It, it has a comma there. And then it, it says, but in the end, it leads to death. So by my mid-20s, I was feeling so much death from some of my, let's just call them failures, because not all of yours would be in the, in the sexual area, but, but we, all have, we all have ethical failures that we, we know in our hearts aren't doing good for us, but they feel really good in the moment, so we keep doing them, right? And there's, there's failures then that bring tons of shame, failures. Can I remind you, though, though, Hills Church, failure is an event, not a person, okay? You have to believe that. Hear God saying that, not me. Failure is an event that takes place in your life. It is not the core of who you are. It is not the person God knit together in your mother's womb. So now you got those kind of failures to add. And now, now look what's happening. I'm supposed to use this as my identity, the person in the mirror, the person I am, the person I, I see. There's some, there's some good I see there, but there's also such a marred image. I can't really know who I am anymore. That's not what God designed you to be. The enemy loves you to be a person who doesn't know who they really are. Because then you play small. Then the, the, the ultimate glory of God can't flow out of you the way it deserves to flow out of you. You understand what I'm saying? Some of you in here, you get into adult life and most, most not everyone's called to, to marriage, but most humans are, I think about 98% go that direction. And, and, and we have big high hopes of, of marriage in America and we put, throw the biggest parties that cost way too much money to get married and it's a big celebration and it's really beautiful and cool and it's a God-ordained institution, marriage, and it's beautiful. And there's people all over within the sound of my voice in this room and listening online, there's people that their marriage has failed. Talk about shame. As a pastor for the last 20 years, I've sat with so many people going through divorces that deeply love Jesus, deeply love other human beings, their marriage failed. And because of their Christian ethic, they instantly have so much shame because of the collateral damage it costs them and the people around them. They have so much shame. And if shame was of any value, I'd let them sit in that. But when they're in my office and we're talking about it, I don't do shame. Because here's the deal. Here's what I'll tell someone that's failed or in any area of life. I'll say, hey, guilt's a good thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, there's a godly guilt that leads you to repentance. There's a godly sorrow or guilt. It's a good thing. It's a human being calling a spade a spade. It's good to go, I don't like what I just did. And then go, I'm so sorry. God first and to the person I offended. 
Guilt's not a bad thing because here's why. Guilt's being sorry for what you did. I'm sorry every day for things I do. Guilt's not a bad thing, but guilt's an awful thing when you don't, when you don't know your identity because you just get overloaded. You can't take anymore. I can't have any more shame, so I can't have any more guilt. So what I'm gonna do is not make anything right or wrong anymore. So I can just alleviate that, right? Guilt is being sorry for what you did, but listen to me, shame is being sorry for who you are. Guilt is being sorry because you made a mistake. Shame is being sorry because you think you are a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes, y'all, period. God does not make mistakes. Humans make mistakes, but they are not mistakes. So then you have, so we'll put just, uh, we'll put some of you at the painful reality of divorce, but that'll also represent, you know, try not to get bleed. I'm trying not to bleed anymore this service. So now look at the mirror and I could just keep going down. I could talk about regrets you have with family. I could talk about broken friendships and relationships. I could talk for us men and women about the, the business ventures that didn't go the way we thought it would. I could talk about being in your 40s or 50s or 60s and you had such high hopes and dreams and aspirations and you were just certain you were gonna do this one thing and that thing, whatever it was, never came to fruition and now you think that that defines you and that life's over and that you were just a small version of who you were supposed to be because the business you started went bankrupt or never worked out. That's just an event, y'all. It's just a thing. It's not, it's not who you are, but let's say those things as we get older in life, again, hurt relationships, broken people, all of a sudden you just keep adding. And, and your story, if you're just being honest, this is, this is why we honor this, right? We, we honor this because it's part of your story and your story is sacred to God. We, we come back to this for information. You can get a lot of wisdom from being honest about the brokenness in your life. That's why as Christians, we're called to bring things into the light because that's where God is. We don't hide things. We don't put on fig leaves anymore because God's not impressed with everything that's gone right and he's not, he's not, he's not uh, fearful of everything that's gone wrong. The work is finished in Christ Jesus. Our rest now is in the yoke of Christ Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's not anything we do awesome, and it's not anything we do wrong. Our hope is in the finished work of Christ Jesus. That is who you are. That is your identity. And so there is many uh, adjectives for the word of God. The word of God uses many different things as adjectives to explain what this thing is right here. But one of the things it says in the book of James is you know what it calls this thing right here? It calls it a mirror reflects a man or woman's face. This is for information, your story. It's to be honored, unashamed about. Soon as shame's gone, you get to start being real honest about the broken pieces and all the bits of beauty that are still there. This is the mirror that speaks to your identity, okay? So we don't pit these against each other. We just make sure they stay in their proper place. This is gonna inform me about some of the things broken and beautiful in my life. But this, at the end of the day, tells me who I am. This is what forms my identity. This is all the promises in Christ. This is who we really, really are. And this is how we attack shame. We don't fig leaf it. We don't overcompensate. You'll spend, like me, a decade doing things that exhaust you and never give you the results you hope for. This is why we get alone in the presence of God. 
This is why we memorize scripture. This is why we pray scripture back. We don't do it to check in with God or make sure he's pleased with us because we've got good attendance reading his Bible. I get up and read the word because it's life or death for me. I stand on God's promises because I couldn't make it in this life without it. I remind myself almost every day, I'm not gonna act, I, I, there's some days throughout the year I miss, but, but I don't miss many prayer times anymore. You know why? Because I'm desperate to be whole. I wanna be holy again. God told me I could in Christ Jesus. Jesus' cross paved the way and opened the door for us to walk back into holiness, not intimidated by it, not scared by it, not afraid of it, but it opened the door for us to say, come back, I want you whole. No shame here. God's saying, I don't do shame. Guilt, sometimes, yeah, we'll do some guilt. It's good, to, it's good for you. But shame we don't do because God is never apologizing for who you are. Your father never is ashamed or apologizing for who you are. Ever. This is the original goodness of God. And the whole story of the Bible after Genesis 3 is how do we get these kids back here? How do we get them back to goodness? How do we usher them back to goodness? It's not going to be from human effort. That already didn't work. We're going to have to do something that defeats the liar, the thief, the enemy, Satan. And it's the blood of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and Christ alone. Your righteousness ends and starts in Christ Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. I said it last week and Jonathan preached a whole Ephesians series on it. We are saved by grace through our faith in the finished work of Jesus. It is not by works. Good, bad, right, wrong, broken, beautiful. We are not saved by any of it. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Why? Because it is the pathway back to wholeness. And when you truly understand the beauty of God's amazing grace, it opens the door for some more, again, I'm going to say it again this week, holy self-awareness to come to God with all of your beauty and you have so much of it, but some of that beauty is hidden behind broken glass and, and we come to God because he's the only one that can pick up those kind of pieces and put back the proper image. That's it. It's your only hope. That is your only hope in this lifetime. And I'm telling you, the more you confront shame in your life, the more it starts to deal with some of the issues that you think right now are bigger than shame in your life and you start to realize, oh, I just do those things because I'm acting out. I don't do those things that are hurting me because I really think they're good or right. I do those things because I'm acting out because buried underneath that, at some point, I felt like I had to compensate by doing that addiction or doing that thing or breaching this bound of part of holiness or whatever. And it's God's like, no, let's deal with the shame. No shame in the kingdom of God. I've said my piece, but I have to say this because there might even be one of you in here and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is my favorite part of any service I do is because I just get to do what I did 25, six, seven years ago is the best decision of my life. I, I received the invitation of Christ. I just received it with the faith of a little kid. I was desperate. I was worn out from a decade of vanity. I was worn out from a decade of all the other dysfunction that comes with trying to compensate for shame. My life was getting really difficult and it shouldn't have been. I was, in my, my, I was 23 years old at this point. 
And I, I watched my parents have a vibrant faith and a beautiful faith in Jesus Christ. And they were living way happier than I was. And I just remember walking back into church one day. I don't even remember what they preached about, sang about. And I just remember receiving with the faith of a child, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61 is one of the best parts of the Bible because it's Isaiah prophesying the heart of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Isaiah's prophesying what the Messiah was going to come back and what he was going to be like. And can, can you just listen real quick? And I'm going to, I can't read it. The, the, my glasses aren't strong enough. I tried in the first service, so I'm going to butcher it, but I'm just going to give you a paraphrased version of what Isaiah 61 says. It says this, um, and we'll get to verse seven here in a sec, but it begins by saying the spirit of the sovereign Lord was upon Jesus because Jesus was anointed empowered to come to earth and preach good news, not bad news, good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to provide for everyone who's grieving and mourning, it says in Zion, to, to, to bound up the prisoner and to set them free, to give liberty to the prisoner is what Jesus came to do. He's good. He is for you. Listen to me, please. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, he is good and he is for you. If you have created any kind of prison in your life that is destroying you and making you into a shell of who you were supposed to be, he came to set the captive free. He came to set you free, to break down those prison walls. Jesus can do it, and I don't just say that in theory because he did it in my life. He can do it for you as well. Came to set the captive free, and I like this one. He came to give uh, uh, beauty. For, for the Bible says poetically ashes, but I'll just say today for all of the shards and glass shards in your life. He came to give you restored beauty. He came to give you the right mirror again. Instead of these, these incomplete marred pictures of who, who you're supposed to be. He came to give you beauty for ashes. The oil of joy he came to give you. He came to restore joy back to you. It says a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair is what he wants for you. Why? So that we would be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then you know what the next verse says? Go ahead and put it up there. I love this one. This is God's heart for you. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. That sounds like a pretty good God. Double for your trouble. Instead of shame, you'll receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. That's what God wants for you. He wants to remove every ounce of shame. That's why I preach so passionately. That's why I went 11 minutes over. I'm getting fired. I'm not coming back. I'm going out swinging then. That's why I'm 11 minutes over. It's not because I like to hear myself talk. I'm, I get mad hearing myself talk sometimes. It's because I know uh, the power of shame and I know the freedom that comes with being delivered from it. And I want that for every single person. But if you're in here and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm just going to do this real simple. It's simple. I'm just going to invite you to it. It's an invitation. Our faith starts with an invitation. And the only thing you get to bring to it is a little bit of faith like a child. You don't bring any of your resume. You don't bring any of your works. You don't bring any of your failures. You bring a faith of a child that we have a God who sees all of the holiness we've breached and says, I'll forgive you for that through my son on the cross. You don't have to work for it or earn it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do the work for you in Jesus Christ on the cross. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I end this way. If you're in here and you'd say, Chad, I don't know, but something's going on in my heart and I'm feeling what you're saying. 
and it's resonating and it's doing something powerful. If you're in here right now and you'd say, I would like to receive the invitation of Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins, to purify me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness and to start walking with him and towards him. If that's you, would you just raise your hand right now? I want to pray with you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Keep them up. No one's looking around. I just want to see. I want to pray. I want to celebrate with you. This is the best decision you'll make in your life. I promise. Thank you. I see that. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Just leave them up a little bit because I see that hand, sir. Thank you. I see it. I see it. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Jesus, I pray now, of course, for every single person in this room but particularly for those hands that were raised because whether they know it or not right now, this is the single most profound moment in their life. The Bible says they are crossing over from death to life. The Bible says not only do they get life now, but they have promised eternal life in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you just fill them right now with streams of living water to overflowing? And would you, would you confirm in their spirit that what's just happened is so incredibly real? And God, I pray now the blessing over every single person in this church that you would bless them today, that you would keep them today, that you would cause your face to shine over every single one of us today, that you would be radically gracious to us, God, that you would turn your countenance towards us. And every single one of us walks out of here with a peace that passes understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We pray it in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Love you, Hills Church. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.